HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. The great state of Wisconsin is home to the only master cheesemaking program outside of Switzerland. Learn more about Wisconsin's cheesemaking history at wisconsincheese.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported podcast network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. This year, we're celebrating 10 years of food radio. For the past decade, we've been taking you behind the scenes of farms, restaurants, breweries, school cafeterias, and more. It's been 10 years, and we're just getting started. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Welcome to The Grape Nation, your weekly wine journey. Our guest is Luke Boland. We'll talk to Luke, of course, about wine, Psalms, and we'll talk to him about Crown Shy. We were going to taste a Chenin Blanc for our weekly wine sip, but Luke screwed up. So we're pivoting to a Pinot Gris, very interesting, which Luke and I will taste during the show and talk to you at the end of the show during the weekly wine sip. I'm your host, Sam Ben Ruby. Stay with us for the Grape Nation on the Heritage Radio Network. We bring wine to the people. Luke Bolin has come through some of the most celebrated dining rooms in New York, working with Batali Bastianich and the major food group at destinations including The Grill and Del Posto, to name a few. Luke is an award-winning sommelier and beverage professional with a keen eye towards the uh, business of wine. He's now the wine director at what is arguably the hottest restaurant in New York City right now, Crown Shy, which is downtown in the financial district. Luke, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks. Great to have you here. Um, all right, so you've been around, but let's tell everybody who you are. So give me uh, a little uh, background on your journey in life and wine that got you to Crown Shy right yeah, now. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so I grew up in a small kind of rural town in Pennsylvania called Kennett Square. 
uh, it's the mushroom capital of the world. Uh, a whole lot, whole lot of stuff <laughs> to do there. Yeah, I know, right? Uh, you can imagine what a bustling, uh, happening community it was. Uh, and you know, I kind of always had this dream that I wanted to be a chef. I started cooking when I was 16. Uh, the local restaurant was Tallulah's Table. It's actually kind of a, a nationally recognized spot for the tasting menu that they do there. And Amy Alexi went on to work with Stephen Starr. Went to the Culinary Institute of America, and then when I moved to New York, I realized uh, cooking professionally is really hard. So uh, I decided. Wait, so to- give me two things. You went to culinary in New Hyde Park. Yeah, yeah, up in Hyde Park. Yeah. What what year was that? And then when did you finish and come to New York? Uh, Approximately. Yeah, yes, yeah. so that was around like '08, and I graduated with my bachelor's around like 2011. Okay. And I moved to New York around that time, pretty much right after. I think it's the summer. Um. I first went back into the kitchen when I moved here, and then uh, I was <clears throat> totally miserable, and so I uh, decided I needed to find something else to do. So wine really just kind of fell in my lap as a really a more of a survival kind of instinct. It was the only other thing I knew anything about, uh, and I just kind of threw myself headfirst into it to start learning and, and create a new career out of it. Did you do any courses at CIA? There was that guy there that's been teaching forever. Yeah, the, uh, I took the, uh, you know, the intro to wine is, is mandatory as part of the associates. associates. And um, I did okay. It wasn't really in, like an interest of mine. Uh, right. And in the bachelor's course, I took the advanced wine. Uh, not really as like a particular interest, but just like a minor curiosity. And so there was like... You know, just scraping the surface of any sort of knowledge. Uh, it certainly wasn't something that I envisioned, like, pursuing for a career or anything like that. It was just, uh, right. you know, a course so to take. when was that wine moment? Like, when did you know, this ain't bad, I could stay with it? Not necessarily at that moment, this is where I'm going to be, but I'd like to look more at this. When and how? Yeah, um... I think like during Associates, we did a tasting where it was like a six, uh, six wine flight of whites. And uh, I kind of thought it was all nonsense up until then, where like people were kind of throwing out these descriptors, and I thought it was <laughs> all a bunch of mumbo jumbo. Uh, and that was like the first time I think I actually got to taste like different varietals side by side and kind of have a chance to, to actually assess the wines and, and put a thought to what makes them different. So that wasn't like the aha, I could do this as a career, but this is like the, this isn't all just made up kind right. of moment. Um, for me, I mean, uh, I worked at this store in Forest Hills called Mr. Vino's. Uh, Decent or just uh, <laughs> <laughs> package? Oh, yeah. oh man, the guy, the guy that owned it uh, was an optometrist. He didn't really know anything about wine. Was he, he there or was it an investment? No, he was, I mean, like, the, it was literally a Cohen's Fashion Opticals next door. His then, place? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, <laughs> That's uh, funny. Yeah, he owned, like, three Cohen's Fashion Opticals. The, the guy was a genius in terms of business. He right. knew, like, exactly what he was doing. Um, what about with wine? <laughs> didn't know a thing about wine. Had no idea. So basically, like, you know, I, I think I was just 21. I had quit my uh, restaurant job in New York. I was, like, on the brink, having no idea what to do with my life. And I started there as like a floor salesperson. This place, the the store was like the size of the studio. You small. know, it, it was small. 
but it was right between like the E train stop in Forest Hills at 71st Avenue and the uh, Long Island Railroad stop. So like it's you good could neighborhood, you Forest Hills. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You couldn't not pass it on your way home from your commute. And uh, <laughs> when I started there, the manager got into an argument about like some kind of pay discrepancy thing, and so he like either quit or got fired. And so by like day three, I was the manager of the store. Really? <laughs> like, yeah. Like first week on the job. Sounds like it makes sense. Because right? this guy was like, well, I don't know anything about wine. Do you know anything about wine? And I was like, oh, not really. But uh, <laughs> you're, you're like Mr. Vino the second. <laughs> he was like, I'll learn, you know, I'll figure it out. I don't know. And how, how long is something? Is it months or are you there for like over a year? I think I was there for uh, just over a year. Okay. And uh, when I was there, I started going through like, the quarter master stuff. I got my uh, intro. And then uh, I think when I started going for my certified, he, the owner started getting a little wary because I started talking about like service and stuff like that. Mm. And uh, obviously, you don't really have to do service in a retail store. And uh, I don't know. When I passed service, he kind of got a little like uh, prickly about my wine pursuits, and I think uh, you know he had he had very local aspirations in terms of like owning the neighborhood, and I kind of wanted to do something a little bit broader than that. And it kind of just like came to a head. So eventually, like I left to go work at uh, at Megu, which <laughs> cool place. Yeah, yeah. It was, it was the more one- cocktails than wine there, right? Well, there's uh, there was no really rhyme or reason in terms of what sold at that place, right? Uh, and I was only there for about three months because when I when I first started, uh, the wine director quit about a month in, and I, I didn't get promoted to the wine director, but I just uh, decided it wasn't really the right place. And I got a job at Italy, um, and that was the first time where like it kind of actually felt like a. Uh, serious thing where there's people that cared you know everywhere else this is on 23rd street right yeah the one in Flatiron. and where at the wine store or one of the restaurants no at monzo at monzo okay yeah yeah was that the meat place yes yeah and uh that was the first time like so dana matuzzi was the um he was like the wine director for the building at the time um but he was a guy that he was very laid back but he cared you know i think like the problem in the past was like Dan, you would talk to him and you you knew that he knew what he was talking about and he had a good grasp of what was going on. You know, people in the past, like, didn't really seem to have that same sort of, like, foundation, that same sort of, like, groundedness. And so that was the first time I really worked for somebody that, like, had a good head on their shoulders. And it was, like, it was that, a... That wasn't an optometrist. <laughs> right? yeah. Okay. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. So now you're getting a little deeper into the real wine world. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. Progress. So, so what happened? So, uh, <laughs> you know, I think it was about like, I worked there for around six months or so, and I started to get a little bored. Um, so I kind of just like retooled the whole cocktail program. Um, it just felt a little stagnant, and I started reading the um, PDT cocktail book. And so I kind of got curious about, like, making my own, like, bitters and other bar mixers and stuff like that. And really just more as a, for, like, a way to pass the time and, and you know, make the, the days kind of go by with an interesting task. I started redoing the whole cocktail list. And I think, you know, he, he kind of saw that uh, I wasn't really content to just, like, sit on my laurels. So uh, after a little bit, he asked me if I, if I wanted to go work at Del Posto because a job had opened there wow, as, like, a, a, as a wine runner. Huge leap. Yeah, I mean. Even as a wine runner. Yeah, he worked there um, 
Oh, he worked in the B&B family back in the day. I think he started at Bobo as like a glass polisher, uh, if I remember correctly. Okay. <laughs> yeah, so the real glory jobs. You know? Right. Someone's got to do them. Um, and so for me, like the whole idea of just working in a, in a four-star New York Times restaurant was like, uh, I'll, you know, I'll do anything. So you were aware of the stature of uh, Del Posto? Yeah, absolutely. I actually I went there... Uh, <clears throat> I think it was my my friend's twenty first birthday. I went there when I was still at CIA. We took a train down, right? And a friend of my brother's was a captain there, and he took care of us. And it was a fantastic meal. So I had been there before. Felt um, good. Yeah, you know, it was a super elegant service. Like, yeah, it, and especially at that age, you have no idea what the hell fine dining even is. You well, know, wait till you get the like, check, <laughs> right? Yeah, it's not yeah, a yeah. cheap place. Yeah, you learn very quickly. Uh, yeah. The, the price of knowing people. So how long are you there? You obviously, you know, go up the ladder. Yeah, uh, Del Posto was like four and a half years. That was, uh, that was a long time. And Did you work with Jeff? Jeff Porter? Porter. Yeah. He was there. Oh, man, Jeff is the, Jeff is the best. Yeah. Jeff is like uh, the... Good, good guy to hook in with. Good guy to hook in with. One of the most like enthusiastic, uh, passionate kind of advocates for Italian wine I think I've ever met. Um, he, he is, uh, like he goes gung ho in terms of, uh, fostering the people that work for him. Um, and he's a great guy. Cause like at the, especially at the time, uh, Eric Hastings, who now lives in Texas was working with us and Jeff was there too. So they were both going for the masters. And so I was kind of keen on going for my advanced with the quarter masters and so these guys were doing a lot of like blind tasting groups, stuff like that. Like I, I got to jump into all these things where, you know, if, if you were just kind of on your own working in a smaller program Never or exposed to that, yeah, right. yeah. Or you'd have to like, you'd have to work so hard to find those connections. And it, it was just like dropped into my lap of getting to hop in. So that's, that's learning a lot quickly from good people. hundred percent. That's what's great about New York and knowing guys like that. So it's fair to say Jeff had an impact wine-wise a little on who you are today? Yeah, of course. And like for him, I think uh, the amazing thing about Jeff is that, you know, you're working in a program like Del Posto. It's like a $3 million wine cellar. You got like, you know, three to 3,500 selections at any given moment, depending on what's in, the, in, in stock. And uh, at the end of the day, the guy's like super happy to just talk to you about like a sixty dollar bottle of Chianti, you know, and like He's moved by that as much as uh, an expensive mascarello or whatever. One hundred percent, it's nice. And he knows how to he knows how to really kind of dive into those wines with the exact same passion, you know. Anyone can talk about the uh, blue chip benchmark producers because we all kind of know it, you know. Like good you get, point. Yeah, you get to a point where it's like you know the great vintages, you know the great producers, you know the great regions. It almost becomes like uh, like an old an old hat, you know. Right. And uh, for him, he was always invigorated by like the new up and comers. He was invigorated by the uh, disenfranchised regions that kind of got the butt end of the stick, just like historically. And uh, like, so re- stop for a second. To him, then. What was a disenfranchised region? Well, then? I mean, like Chianti Classico, I okay. think, it, like 100%. You know, and right. you see but that. But now, now it's great value and it's Tuscan, you know. 
Yeah, but I mean, but the, he, yeah. he advocated for stuff like of that. Of course. Yeah. Well, like, why do you think there's such a resurgence for Chianti mm -hmm. Classico? You know, it's like. Fair enough. Yeah. Yeah. You got to have somebody that's uh, speaking on their behalf. So you're there four and a half years. Obviously, you ascend to like a full blown psalm. Yeah, I kind of worked my way up to like psalm and uh, kind of like a head psalm role at the end. Uh, but then they uh, kind of tapped me to open La Serena. As uh, the wine director. What year was that? Not that long ago. Uh, let's see here. I would say... Three years four, ago? Four. Yeah, maybe three, three or four, four years ago. Because I was at La Serena for about a year to a year and a half, and then that's when I moved to the grill. It's probably there for about the same sort of duration. So La Serena's same people as Del Posto. Yep. You go there to open it up in the Maritime Hotel. Yep. After about a year or so, you leave to go to the grill. Why? Um, for me, you know, at that point I had worked with, uh, almost exclusively Italian wine for, you know, almost six years at that point. Uh, I was still pretty gung ho about passing the master sommelier exam. So all along you're studying for certifications and all that. Yeah. And, uh, at that point, I think what, by the time I'd left La Serena, I, I, uh, I sat for master's theory once I didn't pass and, uh, you know, I just I felt like I didn't really have the uh, the foundation. Like it, it's always a different story of like trying to go out and taste these wines on your own, or going to like the walk around tastings that are facilitated in New York, versus really having the command of a wine list that has like vintage depth and and producer variation, and it, it's just a different story. And so you, you hear about the grill opening up with this massive kind of ambitious wine program. And it was uh, extremely tempting to finally get my hands on Burgundy and Bordeaux right. and Rhone and like even that's their wheelhouse, right? Yeah, hundred yeah. percent. And it, it was a uh, France was a place that you know, yeah, you always love, but you you don't really get to work in a program with that kind of depth always. And I just couldn't help but want to jump into that. So, how long were you there? Uh, probably the same duration, probably like a year and a half. And did it live up to the hype? Were you exposed to the wines, tasting, yeah, yeah. clientele, the cellar? Absolutely. All of that stuff. Um, were you advanced at that point and you were toying with the idea of going for the MS? Yeah, I was advanced at that point. Um, <clears throat> I think when I started there, I'd sat for MS once. Honestly, it was really like the most kind of like a in-depth job interview I've ever really had. Uh, I hopped on a phone call with the wine director, John Slover, and uh, he kind of like put me through the ringer on the phone and uh, really asking questions that kind of felt like uh, was like an exam setting, yeah. yeah. Uh, which I was not very used to, you know, and I, I certainly don't have that interview style. Uh, I no. kind of just like uh, just ask questions about what people like to drink and stuff like that. Is he still but, there? Well, he's the corporate beverage director he is for Major for Food Major. Group. Okay. Yeah. Um, but, like, you know, you show up there and it makes sense. I mean, like, there was lunches where Pierre Lerton from Chateau de Chem was there tasting with one of the largest collectors of the wine outside the estate. And they're bickering about whether, like, 1921 or, like, 1945 shit, right? is their favorite <laughs> yeah. vintage, you know? And you're just like, you're like, in the well, middle like yeah, like, well, just to go open <clears throat> both. And you're like, that's crazy. Okay. Um, so that's certainly a fulfilling and interesting thing, but you eventually leave there and you go to Crown Shy, which is a relatively new restaurant. Just give me the transition out of there and to Crown Shy. We'll talk to Crown Shy about Crown Shy later, but, yeah. but why do you get out? 
Why Crown Chai? How does that come up? Well, Jeff Katz is a partner at Crown Chai, and he was the general manager at Del Posto back in the day. You had that past connection. Yeah, so we had worked in the we had worked together for a long time. You know, he was also um, I think he was like a partner at La Serena, but he approached me uh, to go and be the wine director. And at first, I wasn't quite sure. And then, like the springtime came around, and I don't know if you've I don't know if you've been in the space down at Crown Chai. But Not yet, but it, I heard it's amazing. So, well, it's down at Seventy Pine Street, and uh, within nope. within the building, there's a, a a second restaurant that's being opened on the sixty third floor. You guys, though, yeah, 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 so, yeah still us. Um, and like when he basically introduced me to James Kent, who's the chef, and. Uh, this amazing guy, Dan Catanella, who's like kind of this director of ops role. He does everything. He works his ass off. He's just this awesome dude. Um, he brought me up to the 63rd floor and there's this massive outdoor terrace that like looks over the west side of the Hudson River and stuff. And it's like this beautiful, like early spring after like afternoon, the sun's like cresting in the sky and they're all just sitting out on this terrace and like beach chairs drinking a bottle of white wine. It's, it's like, like going to a, to buy a house and they're baking cookies. <laughs> they set you up at the per- they bring you there for like the perfect scenario. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. He's like, so uh, you want to be a part of this? What do you think? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah exactly. Right. I was like, uh, yeah, yeah, I can see myself here. So that worked out pretty well. So that was when? That was less than a year ago, right? Uh, a little more than a year little, ago. It is a little more than. A year? Yeah, because okay. at first um, th- that must have been around like May of last year. Because uh, when did they open? We didn't open until March of this year. Okay. So, that's what I meant. I mean, the yeah, actual yeah, yeah. service yeah. hasn't been that long. Okay, the yeah, plans, yeah. obviously. Yeah, it's been about six months okay. we've been open. Um, so we're going to talk about that in a minute. But I, I, I want to get your take on a bunch of things. Um, I've had a lot of good psalms pass through the show, obviously, winemakers, writers, and all of that. But I think you're in the position to answer this question. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> Maybe not. The way Tell me what you think the role of the current day psalm is. Because a lot of guys were around that are older and they've moved on to different things, you know, making wine, other businesses and all that. Yeah, yeah. There's sort of a new guard of guys in. I mean, how do do you see the role of a psalm? I mean, to me, the the thing that... uh is always the most important is like to never forget that you're a service individual, you know, like I think one of like a thing that always irks me is like, uh, you, you, sometimes you hear people throw on the term like a uh, glorified bus boy and stuff like that. <laughs> and it's always just like, shut the hell up, man. Like that's all you're ever going to be because that's what our job is. Because like facilitating whatever needs to be done in the dining room is like the name of the game, you that's, know, that- that's and, primary. Yeah, of course. Like, we are so fortunate to be able to, like, have a depth of knowledge about wine that allows us to do a job that's more intricate than, like, you know, what's the typical call of a restaurant employee, you know, and facilitating these sales and opening bottles and getting to taste these amazing things. Like, God forbid the least of your duties is, like... Pour some water and clear some plates and run some food. You know, it's like. But you know, not everybody thinks that way. Yeah, I know. You know, there's sort of this elitist tinge in thinking towards psalms. You know, you, you so the current day psalm, at least the way you see it, is a guy who's involved. You know, in everything, the good of the restaurant. Yeah, I mean, and uh, yeah, well, you know, like. But let's get to the wine part because 
I picked up somewhere you said that Psalms are in the business of high-speed data crunching, which I guess is the intake of information and all that. For sure. H- how does that apply to wine? I mean, what does that mean? Well, you're essentially, uh, you're an active translator, you know? Like, if you ever watch a video of, like, somebody translating, like, uh, you know, Spanish or German or Italian or Mandarin or whatever to English, like, you're essentially just sitting there having to filter all these inputs into something that means something. And it's tough, right? Because, like, you might have some people that are, I don't know, let's say, like, fluent in wine. You know, they have uh, a very deep understanding of producers and regions and vintages and styles, etc., And so it's easy. You know, that's an easy job. Uh, Listening to them and and finding a bottle that's going to work for them is not that challenging. But you have people that are kind of throwing out, like, arbitrary terms. You know, not that dry, but fruity, but, like, light, but I like Cabernet. Like, all these kind of... So you got to crunch all that and try to get to the... Yeah, yeah, yeah. You got got a lot of kind of uh, potentially conflicting data or just, like, stuff that's not really clear. And you kind of have to, like... You have to know how to like poke and prod a little bit without being annoying, without asking them questions that are hard, you know? Well, well that my next question was, you know, if a guy can lead you, and even if he's all over the place, yeah, like you say, you could crunch it down to something. Yeah, yeah. What about the guy who like deer in the headlights, which is always a big sign. You know, I look at the wine list or the psalm comes over, I'm intimidated. Yeah, how do you handle that? The people that don't know anything, you kind of like, rather than, let's say I ask you a question, you know, what, what type of wine do you normally enjoy? I don't know. Hey, yeah, I don't know. Yeah. Okay. Uh, all right. Well, like, uh, you know, do you like fruity wine? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you'll, yeah, you'll it's keep like, pushing. Yeah, you start to like kind of take their hand, you know, like, do you like it like kind of rich and like flavorful, you know, like you don't even bother about like questions where it's like. You know, do you like structured or like... Right, so you're sensitive to attitude and not being like too nerdy. Yeah, 100%. Because you'll lose the guy, right? Yeah, and you know, like you kind of have to simplify things a bit, you know. Do you like big flavors? Do you like it to be like robust and like... Right. Yeah, that kind of stuff where they they at least have an, an idea of like what they might like, whether or not they can put it into their own words. So I, I beg our listeners... You know, just just talk and be as descriptive as you can. I mean that that's that's what you're all about. I mean you'll you'll figure that out with basic information, but you know if you're bullshitting or you're not talking, how do you figure it out? You know, and it it becomes a better experience. True. The worst, the absolute worst, is when uh, you try to just toss out as many like words as you've heard or as you think you should be saying this is or, the customer yeah yeah yeah. just to try to be yeah. verbose or something the, the 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 way to make our job as a sommelier to get us something that you're gonna like the hardest is just throw out a whole bunch of stuff like i had a person one time ask for like you know a dry but not too dry sancerre from california because they typically like cabernet sauvignon <laughs> and you're just like <laughs> What are you drinking Sancerre from California anyway? And then equating it to cab. Get out of here. And it's just like, well, like, like, damn, that just like, that makes my response really hard because you got to sit there first. I can be like, uh, so do you like a light or a full bodied red? <laughs> you <know>? Right. <laughs> Where am I going with this? Yeah. yeah. What, um, when you jumped in the biz and you know, you were exposed to some pretty good places, good clientele, good wine lists. I mean, today 
have you seen much change in that span that you've worked? I mean, is there anything you put your finger on? Like, man, today is so much different than earlier because? Um, I think that uh, the one thing I'll say is the the customers that know what they want or the, the wine drinkers that know what they want are they're stuck in their ways is what I've found. You know, the people that are Burgundy drinkers are always going to drink Burgundy. The people that drink Bordeaux are always going to drink Bordeaux. But the refreshing part of the industry and of the, the business as a buyer is there's like so much more excitement for kind of everything. You know, people are much more willing to accept the fact that there's high quality wine made in different places. And so as a buyer, you can kind of be a little bit more experimental you can buy stuff from, you know, more regions than New Worlds that other people might have just ignored, right. like, right. altogether. Um, I have people asking for orange wine oftentimes. Um, you know, the, these kind that, of... That's me. I mean, I'll walk in, you'll come over, I'll say, what's the most interesting, funky thing you have on the list? Yeah, yeah. And that takes... I mean, your wine list is 50-plus pages, you know, pretty traditional. Yeah. But that takes you off, you know, the main thing. Yeah, I mean, a lot of people have so used... So more people are doing that. Yeah, and I think uh, that word funky, you know, a lot of people have kind of attached onto that to uh, to be their kind of like guiding light for I want something that's, you know, interesting. And, you know, sure, my list, for example, has a lot of traditional stuff, but, you know, that, like there's always like pockets and jams and like stuff from, you know, Anjou in the Loire Valley right. or like the Jura in France or... I mean, even like natural winemakers in Shortland in South Africa or like the Adelaide Hills in Australia or like you got these like old vine Sanso producers in Chile. Like they like people have no clue about some of those areas. A hundred percent. And I think that's like a travesty, you know, is people associate like natural wine, organic wine, funky wine with like, you know, some slightly esoteric regions of France. And like that's kind of it. And that exists everywhere. Right. You know, I, I agree with that. Um you know, you sort of give a crap about, you know, the business and wine as a business. Um, you know, great restaurants now rely on their wine program to turn in a lot of, you know, profit. Yeah. And doing all of that. I mean, in your mind or your description, what does it take to build a successful wine program? And you had your hand in that, you know, in Crown Shy. Yeah, I think... Um the hardest, the hardest hurdle to get over, um, is the uh, the grasp of the financial operators on the restaurant as a whole, because it's very easy to just say if we lower our cost percentage, then we'll make more money, right? That's like a very that's by very what, obvious selling more wine by making better margins on the wine that you okay. sell. You know, right. So uh, you know, it's 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 uh, it's just natural. You lower the cost percentage, you make more money on each bottle that you sell. Therefore, we make more money, and the restaurant will be successful. The problem is, you have so many platforms these days. You got like 750. You got like the Vivino app. You got like all these wine writers that are talking about what things cost. A lot of people know what stuff is supposed to cost these days. And so as a, as a wine buyer and as a wine director, you kind of have to work a little bit harder to create like a diversified list that actually has different price points and different markups 
where you can't just like that <laughs> tap everything up two and a half, three and a half, four times. Whatever. Yeah, you know, I, I use the term like lazy wine director, where it's like, okay, well, I was told I have to hit twenty nine percent cost, and therefore everything is marked up twenty nine percent cost. That's bull. You know, you're saying that by bringing in different wines. Well, can- and and by like just making decisions, you know, it's like okay, so <clears throat> let's say. Um, Let's say I find really great wines by the glass that are at a, at a, at a good cost, and I can use that to leverage uh, champagne. So, like, for example, uh, I think champagne is a great example where everybody loves to talk about drinking champagne. I love champagne. It's the most versatile wine. Like, you talk to Psalms, ah, it goes with everything. It's like you can pair champagne with an entire eight-course menu because it's so versatile. And they look at their wine list, and it's like there's not a single bottle under 100 bucks. you know? So, like, that to me... There's like a kind of cognitive dissonance where it's like, I'm going to encourage the purchase of this wine that I'm actively making inaccessible. <laughs> and that's kind of <laughs> silly, yeah. you know? So to me, uh, like pretty much all my sparkling wine is two times markup. So it's like, it's now like retail sparkling non champagne. Uh, or there's like, I think like my Prosecco is three times. <laughs> like, but, but the sparkling champagne, the champagne is yeah, yeah, I'll like so champagne the, and, and even so like. First of all, you have a pretty decent sized list of champagne. Yeah, yeah, and you're saying that the markups are very reasonable. Yeah, a lot so of the that's prices. a great place to drink champagne. You want to encourage that? Hundred percent. A lot so of so there's a, a bingo the, right there about <laughs> you know. Well, a lot a lot of the prices look like uh, retail prices for the champagne on my list, you know, and it's right. like. Uh, but nobody's stopping at one bottle of champagne, so that's a good entree, right? You know, see, there Hello. you go. You took the words right out of my mouth. So here's the thing: like the person, the the guest that wins is the two top that orders one bottle of champagne and leaves. You guys won, you know. <laughs> right. You got the best value of the night. Way to go! You did it. Right. You know, but like uh, follow you get- them out and rough them up, right? <laughs> Uh, that you you missed the hundred dollar psalm fee. Uh, right. No, uh, but you know you get like a four top, a six top, anything bigger than that, and you know they're gonna have the bottle of champagne. Like I I always kind of joke where I'm like you know if somebody has to decide between a round of cocktails or a bottle of champagne, the bottle of champagne is the obvious value. I'm doing something right, and so like th- there's also the, the mentality. You know, uh, if the champagne is marked up well. Well then, probably the other stuff is too, right? And then you flip like you flip through the list. See and what then, I did here? Yeah, right. exactly. <laughs> you flip through the rest of the list, and you're like, oh wow! Like all of a sudden, there's stuff I can drink on every page, and there's like a, a wide variety of producers and regions and cool things. So it actually and puts people at ease a little. That's I hope so. In, in in a way, like you know, this is a fair, good, deep list. Yes, and you know, eventually it gets to a point where uh, you know you can you can talk about like the the boring stuff like cost percent right and uh or you can talk about like guest perception and repeat guests and check averages and you can talk about like that kind of stuff where there's real numbers that go into the fact that like people that are excited to drink at your establishment they're excited to eat at your establishment that want to come back because they don't feel like they're getting taken advantage of is going to create a much more sustainable business than a 29% cost of goods, you know. You know, that's that sounds like a good business plan and a sustainable business plan. Um, we got to take a break in a minute, but before we take a break, I want to get some wine intel on you from you. Okay. And we you, you kind of broached it a little when you were talking about, you know, some of the off regions and all of that. But tell me 
personally and for business, what's you know exciting you as far as regions, grapes, wineries? I mean, are you keyed into anything specifically, or are you making a move at the restaurant to build up an area? Um, I mean, I I would say like in terms of the bedrock of the list, I do still like selfishly buy a lot of French wine just because it's why I tend to like to drink. But uh, in terms of like places I've been uh, very excited by, it's pretty much like South America, particularly like Southern Chile. Um, What's in Southern Chile? That's a, it. Uh, like Itata Valley, uh, which has a lot of like old bush vines uh, of different things like Carignan, Sanso, Syrah, like things like that. Are they blending them or they're doing individual grape bottlings or both? It's kind of a mix. Um, but you see, um, like, you'll you'll see like thicker skin grape varieties like uh, Syrah or Carignan, blended with like thinner skin grapes ah, like Sanso or Pais. So you kind of get these like really elegant, medium-bodied reds that have these like cool, spicy kind of characteristics. Do you have a maker or two for me you could throw out? Well, I mean, we pour one by the glass from uh, these guys called Rogue Vine. Uh, R O G U E. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Um, and that is a Sanso and Pais blend. Um, mm. They kind of just like find these uh, almost like abandoned vineyards of these bush vines. We used to have, I think the one they're pouring now is called like Grandi Tata, and they had one called Super Itata. The one before is like Carignan, Syrah, and I think Morved. And uh, the one now is Sanso and Pais. And they're just like awesome wines where, you know, That's people. interesting. Yeah, people think of like Chile and they think of like Carmenere yeah. and like Merlot or Cab, and it's like very. Where's like dense. Don Melkor from? Is that Chile? <laughs> yeah, that kind of stuff. Give yeah, me one, kind of give me something else too. Just like that. That was great. Yeah, there's cool stuff in, um, I mean, like South Australia. Uh, we pour a sparkling rose by the glass from a producer named Mundara. They're in Victoria. Spell it um, for me. M O O N D A R R A. Okay, I'll, I'll double check it. Yeah, Mundara. It's a biodynamic uh, grower. They cultivate cattle and they grow grapes. So it's um, like a permaculture thing. Yeah, you know, and like they, uh, when we first opened, we had this really awesome Brut Rose from them made in the Champagne Method where they're using like a back vintage Solera Pion Noir for <laughs> their Brut Rose. So you had this like super vinous, textural, savory champagne style brut mm. rosé for like 13 bucks a glass incredible you know? and it was like insane like delicious and just like very specific into the place and like really of that australian ethos of like that kind of australian wine movement and like kind of next to that you have these producers like um you know like vintiloper in the in clare valley down in south australia and they're they're making uh these like super taut rieslings that are like white peppered and limey and like mm. 10% alcohol and it's just like piercingly fresh, you know, that kind of stuff to me is really fun. In, 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 in uh, South Africa, you got all these guys in Shortland making insane wine. And like, I love to represent these classics, like the stuff from Evan Sadie, which is like way more expensive, but you know, people have come in and recognized it and bought it. Even though you're talking about like, between 180 and 225 dollar price tag for some people are hesitant to spend that on a region that's not like a but when people like see yeah that's a wine that should be like 300 bucks right on some list and it's not everywhere <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah it's there 
and uh, they see it. And then, like, if you're in the know or if you're, like, we've had people, like, that have gone on vacation or honeymoon to, like, South Africa or are South African. Right. <laughs> like, they come and, like, oh, my God, I can't believe you have this. Right. And then you also have people, like, um, you know, Three Foxes and Shortland. They're making these, like, really cool monovarietal vintage bottlings that change grape every year based wow. on what was the best. Or you have people like there's also cool influences where it's like Terre Brule, where it's uh, from Vincent Carême and Vouvray. He married his wife, who's South African, and when he was down there, he was like, "Oh my God, this terroir is amazing!" and started making Chenin Blanc and wow. uh, Syrah and uh, um, I mean, there's Blend a decent there. amount of Chenin there, but here's like a French guy who moved to South Africa, yeah. putting a nice touch on it. Um, those are all. Very interesting regions and wines. Um, we'll post that. Um, Luke, we have to take a quick break. When we come back, I want to talk to you about Crown Shy, the wine program, a few other things. We're talking to Luke Bolin. Luke is the wine director at Crown Shy, the restaurant downtown um, in New York. You're listening to The Grape Nation. We'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. Did you know that 90% of Wisconsin's milk is made into cheese? And this is not just any milk. When Swiss, German, and Italian cheesemakers first settled into Wisconsin, they chose their new home because of the special terroir of the region. Its soil and water are nurtured by the goodness of glacial sediment, and those elements lend themselves to the very best milk. Today, Wisconsin produces 25% of all cheeses made in the U.S., and Wisconsin cheeses have won more awards than any other state or country in the world. How did they do it? Wisconsin cheesemakers combined their heritage and tradition with nonstop innovation. They were the first state to establish cheese-grade standards and the first to require that every cheese plant be overseen by a licensed cheesemaker. Wisconsin is the only place outside of Europe where one can pursue an elite master cheesemaker certification. All of these impeccably high standards mean Wisconsin produces more than 48% of the nation's specialty cheese. Are you enjoying this podcast? Heritage Radio Network has plenty more. My name is Linda Liu, and I'm the host of Feast Meets West, the show that celebrates Asian culture through the lens of food here on HRN. Listen to episodes like The Evolution of Chinatown with Namwa Tea Parlors, Wilson Tang, and New York Times' Elaine Chen. Catch our ongoing series, Women in Asian Food, and spotlight episodes with our heroes like Anita Lowe. You can find Feast Meets West wherever you listen to podcasts and on heritageradionetwork.org. All right, we're back. We're back with my guest, Luke Bolin. Luke is the wine director of Crown Shy. Um, if you haven't heard about Crown Shy yet, um, take my word. Um, look for it, and you'll see that a lot of good things are going on. Luke, let's talk about Crown Shy a little. All righty. Um, John Bonet, who was a past guest and a very incredible uh, wine writer, has said, you have assembled one of the most drinkable lists in the city. How do you interpret that? I mean, I kind of get what he's saying, yeah, yeah, yeah. and it's a nice thing, I think. <laughs> but what, what does he mean, or how do you translate it? Nah, he's a super nice guy. Um, I took care of him when he was in. He's, uh, he's been in, like, I don't know, I would say maybe like five times wow. since we opened. Um, real just awesome dude. 
and uh, always very complimentary, very kind when he comes in. I think the f- the first time he came in, it was like a party of six, and they probably drank like seven or eight bottles of wine. Wow. Like, he, but it was it was so nice because you could just tell that like. Yeah, there was like a this fiery spirit inside of him where like every time he'd be like, yeah, let me see the wine list again. And then like, you know, there would be something else that kind of piqued his interest. And uh, so what is what does he mean by drinkable list? Um, I, I think piqued his interest, which means you were able to satiate that. But yeah, yeah, you, yeah. you know, what is what does that mean to not a John Bonet who walks in? Why is it a drinkable list? Well, I think that there's um to me, there's like kind of two layers, right? So like in some cases you have uh, just a good price, right? So for example, like I think in the in that piece he mentioned uh, Thierry Shu, which is a producer up in Iran Sea, which is in uh, northern Burgundy, right? And uh, good you know, value, right? Well, so we have the Cremant, um, which is the sparkling, and essentially we also had in Magnum some of his his Rouge wines. Um, but basically, like you're looking at, you know, a thirty-five dollar bottle of sparkling wine on the list. Now, if you're just thinking to yourself, like, oh, that's a thirty-five dollar bottle of sparkling, like, great value, you know. But like, kind of the underlying truth there is like this guy also tends the vines for Vincent Dovisat up in Iransi as well. You know, one of the most iconic Chablis producers in the world. You know, second only, maybe not even second, but like head to head with Raveno. And, like, he's the steward of his vines up in this, like, kind of outlier satellite area just outside Chablis. So, like, there's there's the reward for somebody that doesn't know, which is, like, delicious, inexpensive sparkling wine. And there's the reward for somebody that does know, where when you can spot that producer and be like, it's here, like, obviously, right. I'm going to drink that, you know? Right. And, like, that was kind of every single pick he had, like, throughout the night when he was just like, boom, we'll take I, I this, we'll take that. I think that's a good example and explanation. Yeah, yeah. You know, I think that applies to different producers' regions. You know, you're not just getting the, uh, you know, the trophy guy and all that. It's, it's wrapped around. Well, I, think, it's, I think drinkable to him means somewhat democratic and reasonable and all that. Yeah, and it's not like they were only drinking, like, uh, you know, inexpensive sparkling wine. Like right. They, they were drinking all over the map. Right. But, like, that's definitely a guy that can hone in on, uh, you know, the history of, of producers, and he knows what he's picking for a reason. And I think that that's kind of what he was getting at was, like, there's value if you don't know, and there's value if you do know. Which is almost everybody. Now, you said you were sitting on, like, the 60th floor in May or something, <laughs> and you took the job. Does that mean you were the guy or you had a hand in building the program from the ground up? You know, because we're talking about a new restaurant. How does, you know, we're talking incredible food. You know, we've talked about the list a bunch. Yeah, I mean, uh, so the that first interview um, was kind of back in the day. And then obviously there's a lot of construction stuff that had to happen. Actually, I ended up filling back in at Del Posto during the holiday season. <laughs> Because it was supposed to be open in September and Del Posto me ah. some. So I could just like walk back on the floor and like do that stuff again. Um, but really from like the new year on, it was just like crown shy all the way. And I was there full time. And, uh, you know, it's like we kind of all had our tasks and like we would touch base every now and again. But like you have such like amazing people there. Like James Kent is a chef who brought in all these like uber talents from his history at 11 Madison and Nomad 
Like our, our two, like the executive sous chef and chef de cuisine, uh, Daniel Garcia and Jasimran Singh are like crazy talented guys. And so like they're putting together menus and it's like, they like, it doesn't need to be in anybody else's hands, you know, like right. they're going to knock that out of the park regardless, you know? And then you got like Jeff Katz who brought on, um, like, Max Quatrone, who was at Serena um, and like at Frankie's and stuff like that back in the day. And Mary Grace uh, Stasio, who used to be at Del Posto as a manager. And like, so the front of the house is taken care of too. You know, like those right. guys know what they're doing in the front Solid. of the house. Yeah, of course. All around. So it's great because then for me, it's like, sure, I, you know, I like to be in tune to the food. I like to be in tune to the service, but it kind of gives me the opportunity to just be like, I don't have to worry about anything. You know, I can just focus in on the wine and I can hire a great staff, which I think I have, and I can put together, you know, a, a strong by the glass list that functions the way I need it to function and, and build, you know, a jumping off point to keep growing. Cause right. you know, this is, I, I'm happy with what I put together, but there's only like, there's only more to do. You know, there's always more to do. How much you mentioned, you know, James Ken is one of the principals and the chef from 11 Madison. How much does the food, which is kind of eclectic, European, New England, California, how much does the food play on what the list looks like? Well, I think um, the, the food is kind of fun because there's no real specific, like, defined influence. And I think, like... Right, it's not a blah blah restaurant. Yeah, it's an amalgam of a lot of things. Yeah, and even if you try and use like some kind of boring term like uh, "new American," you know, (laughs) that that doesn't even really cover it either. And and you look into the kitchen, and you see such a like tapestry of different people from different backgrounds and like different influences, and like they are bringing that stuff to the dishes in like very perceptible ways. You know, like no kind of cultural influence is like stymied in the back of the house. And that I think really sings on the plate, you know, so it's kind of so the wine has to run side by side and or complement it. Yeah. And I think that that's kind of why there's such a wide gamut of uh, different selections. And I, I always try to keep like a tight by the glass program, for instance. And is that I- a big deal? I mean, you toil over that. Like your by the glass is interesting, you know, it's great producers. That's important to you? Well, to me, it kind of has to have twofold, right? Because, like, I think uh, every sort of um, potential style needs to be covered. I think you need to have a diversity of price points. I think you have to have a diversity of styles. But I also think you need to have, um, uh, and this is, you know, probably counterintuitive to a lot of people but i think you need to have a narrow selection you know i think you sit down but narrow but curated yes narrow as in uh not not going uh, crazy yeah not a lot of selections i like to keep it to three sparkling six white one rosé six red that's listen you're probably right but that's that's pretty decent yeah, but I mean, like, you, know, you also... I thought you were going to say two, four, three, and one or <laughs> yeah, something. Yeah, yeah, you know? I know. You probably got, you could, you got somebody, like, running a program with, like, yeah. uh, one sparkling, two well, white, yeah, two with red, a one-page wine list. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know. But, you know, uh, but here's the problem, is you go to some other uh, places trying to do something maybe, like, maybe not more ambitious, but more creative or whatever, and, like, we have 100 wines by the glass. 
And then you order something like, well, we actually don't have that one stock. Right. <laughs> it's yeah. like, I mean, I don't even want to get it's into It's like, that. Well, well, tell me about that one. Like, I have no idea. BS versus something that's very well thought out. Yeah, 100%. Or you go to a place where it's like, let's say you have 10 whites and 10 reds, right? Yeah. Not that much more. But then all of a sudden you're like, okay, well, well that, that white is kind of like, uh, you know, light bodied and neutral and like kind of like salty and minerally and like refreshing. <laughs> uh, but then so is that one and so is that one. And then all of a sudden you have like three whites that pretty much taste the same. And it's like, so you might as well just have like yeah. seven instead yeah. of 10. Yeah. You know, that's why I leave it to a guy like you. All right. Last thing on the restaurant. So the list, when we go back, I mean, I said earlier, it's over 40, 50 pages. What are the distinguishable strengths? Obviously, you keep saying French, so <laughs> yeah. French, but what is it? More Burgundy than Bordeaux, vice versa, you know, Northern Rhone? Um, it's uh, just tell me where that strength is and what you're proud of. Well, in terms of like uh, number of selections, I would say definitely Burgundy for sure. And um, the thing with Burgundy is I treat it very much like champagne, where it's like, you know, the prices are obviously just always climbing. And oftentimes they reach a point of like comical, just astronomical heights. And so Burgundy is a place where I try to be very like rational and reasonable with my markups because otherwise your list just starts to look like a joke, you know. Um, So that's great. I mean, you know, if Burgundy is something you've started to drink or you're a drinker or you want to try it. You're going there, and the list is diverse and reasonable. Well, it's right? tough. I mean, that's what you're saying. Yeah, yeah, it's tough too. Like, let's say, uh, let's say somebody comes to you and they're like, "Hey, you know, you should. Uh, if you want to splurge, you should really try Merceau." And you go to a restaurant, and it's like current vintage Merceau. It's like 2017 Merceau, and it's like the point of entry is like 180 dollars. <laughs> you're just like, "Come on!" You're like, what the hell? And that's like a very sort of like reasonable expectation nowadays for like a high quality producer Merceau is like you're not getting in for less than 150. And that kind of bothers me a little bit uh, where like it's the same it's the same thing with champagne. You know, champagne is most versatile wine, blah, blah, blah. And then you can't buy it. And so I think like I, I like that. The strength to me is like, yes, there's a there's a lot of selections in Burgundy, but like you see the blue chip producers, but for a fair markup. And you see up-and-coming producers for a fair markup. And so it's kind of, it's a little bit more inviting, I think. And then you also have that, and I I think the strength, too, is diversity. Because it almost feels, in my opinion, like a retail store. Like, or or a personal seller. You know, like, I like to believe if I I had a limitless amount of money and I just, like, had to start buying wine for myself, that the wine list that I have right now would be very reflective of what I'd be buying and putting in my cellar. Right. And using to like entertain guests I had at my house or to like drink with dinner. That you wanted to do good for. Yeah. You know, that they'd walk out and go, this is cool. I like this. What's that? 100%. Put a little pain into the fact that you want to impress them and woo them and all of that. Yeah. And I, I think like I can really confidently say like there's nothing on my list that I wouldn't drink myself. Which is you know? great. Um, all right. We got to move on. Before we, I'm going to subject you to our wine list. But before we do that, I, I can't let you leave Subjection. here without. Uh, is there anything left to say about Mario Batali? You were around that world. Do we not want to get into that? Not really. I mean, like. All right, let's leave it. <laughs> Fine. Um, all right. So, Luke, we do a thing called the wine list every week. We all ask right. our guests the same five questions so this isn't unique to you it's five questions that the last 124 guests i'm still gonna feel unique and by the way 
Luke is here celebrating our three-year anniversary, mm. and I think it's our uh, 125th show. So, Luke, this is a little special. We started hey, congrats, the show man. three years ago today, Yeah, and you're our 125th uh, interview. But we've been to Charleston Wine Festival many years, Taste Washington. We've been to Napa, Naples Wine Festival. We've been to uh, a bunch of other places. All right, so here's the wine list. The first question is, and we may have broached it a little already, but what are you drinking now? What's in your fridge? What's interesting for the restaurant? What's seasonal? What's cool? Uh, one thing that I recently tasted was uh, a Beaujolais from uh, Domaine Chapelet. It's their Chirubla. Um, Chirubla's a region? Yeah, it's, one a, it's one of the crews of Beaujolais. Um, you know, I think... Uh, in an attempt to become a more serious region, you start to see some Beaujolais with, uh, you know, like everybody used to see like carbonic maceration and like these really lifted, uh, juicy, fruity styles across the board. And I think it kind of like, like slung shot in the opposite direction. You see all these producers from like Morgan and Moulin Avant making these like really like tough and like, you know, kind of muscular styles. And, and this one is just like really true to form. It's like, it's it's well structured, but it's like bright and fresh and juicy without feeling fruity for no reason. And it's just a really well made one. So that's a Chapelet Cheruble. Yes. Okay. Um, anything else? Um, I've been really keen on this producer in Australia, Sierra Reed. Um, S i e r r a Sierra Reed. Yeah, R e d. Okay. Yeah, she's actually a, she's an expat that moved to uh, Australia, but. She's doing this really cool stuff where she's uh, only working with um, like organic and biodynamic growers, typically that have centenarian vines, so like only a hundred year old vines wow. and up. Uh, typically dealing with people in like uh, Barassa and Western Victoria, so people like Heathcote and Grampians and stuff like that. Um, but she has like these really awesome wines where she's got like you know typically people think of Aussie Shiraz. It's like dense tons Big, of oak, like 16 percent alcohol yeah. and her stuff is like 60 day maceration like bartolo mascarello and like 12 percent alcohol and you know it's like translucent in the glass and, and floral and lifted and just Sounds like great. really kind of on the cusp of a uh, new australian wine those are good ones i'm gonna post those all right here's the goofiest question on the list <laughs> favorite <laughs> wine and food pairing Anything, not that you eat it every week, month, year, but something that when you do, it's like, whoa, you know, this is what it's about. I'll tell you what, the uh, this this wine pairing sticks with me, uh, like all the time. I went, you know, that if you say champagne and oysters, I smack you, <laughs> yeah. oh, so you shit, retract that. Right. Okay. Yeah, so give me your second I'll, choice. I'll just, I'll just leave now, okay? Uh, no, I went to Lucali's a little while ago, okay? And uh, that's a pizza place in Brooklyn, Mark yeah. Iacono. Go ahead, yeah. it's a decent pizza joint, okay? <laughs> Arguably, like some of the best pizza. And For sure. uh, a buddy of mine brought a bottle of 2006 Chateau Fonsalette. And so this is a Grenache from uh, the Chateauneuf de Pop region in the southern Rhone in France. And my God, like, the, just like Grenache and like tangy tart flavors, like, you know, the, the pizza sauce, sauce. On the pizzas. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You have like herbaceousness from the basil. You have this like tangy tart pizza sauce and this like exotic fruity so strawberry like Grenache, it was just like absolutely stunningly delicious, and and that is like you know it, it couldn't have been a better bottle to go with the that, pizza. That's that's a good one, man. 
Um, all right, third question. And I know you've been busy the last year, but give me your favorite wine restaurant and or bar. Where's a place you can go to that you could hang and you know there's good people, they got a good wine list, they know what they're talking about? Wine bar, restaurant. Yeah, I mean... I always worry about being exclusive, like, oh, I left this guy. But who's good out there? Uh, the two that always immediately come to mind are... Um, Caleb Ganzer's program over He's a at the show company. favorite. Yeah, yeah. Like, how can you not pick that? Yeah. You know, it's like... Mass- it's a bit of an industry hang, too. Yeah. But, I mean, for the <laughs> consumer, it's a knockout place. I'm a fan. I mean, that, that's a great place to go. The new, like, the Frank's Wine Bar that they've tacked John on. Patterson. Yep. He does a great, a great job. Guy. But, you know, I will say uh, something that might go a little bit overlooked. Uh, I recently went to Gotham Bar and Grill for dinner. and uh, Josh Litt. Josh Litt. Uh, man, he's got, like... Killer list and also some really fun, uh, very inexpensively marked up wines in the back that are like more kind of like natural tuned. So Alfred Portali just left. He took over for Heidi Turzin. They changed everything after 30 years. Yeah, yeah. What you're talking about is that stuff Josh has sort of worked his way in? I think it's twofold. One, I think that there's uh, a lot of the old guard stuff that you know it's probably sat around forever big time and so it's like uh, just good value to be found there and you know honestly that place has always kind of gone through ebbs and flows or random times you'd be like oh my god i can like cherry pick their northern rhone selection so bad and like then all of a sudden be like uh their selection sucks and like you come back and be like wow i can really cherry pick their bordeaux and then come back and be like oh that selection sucks and like but now it's in this really cool place where there's just a lot of great selections and so i wouldn't call it like you know like a wine bar or whatever but just a place to go and like have Wine. I think it's a good pick. I think it's a very uh, cool spot. Yeah, yeah. New chef and all that. All right, fourth question. Favorite all-time wine? I always used to say it used to be the most rare and expensive wine, but it's not that anymore. What, what What's an important wine in your past that still resonates with you? Hmm. Could be one, could be two. Yeah, that's uh Well, I will... So s- nothing like blasts in your head. Uh, it's tough, man. You you open a lot of stuff. Uh, it's hard to like pick ahas. But any like experience? All right, stuff? you know what? You know it's really cool. So up at the grill, uh, we had a we had a, a three liter of nineteen thirty four Lamission Oprion. Jesus. And uh, I was, I think it was on the list for like twenty two thousand dollars or something like that. Okay. I was like, ah, oh, man, I'll never sell that. And some guy one day brought in the same bottle. As a seven fifty for corkage. And so I was like, what the hell? Like what are the odds that I get to that's try? Crazy. That? It's like so you single got to bottle. taste it? Yeah, like who knows? You know, like, like it could have been fake, it could have been whatever, but like, man, that wine was like opaque, in shape, like, you know, for great that color. Kind of age. Like, my goodness. That's what's impressive. Uh, that, that you know it holds up and all that I, I i get that that's a good answer i'm I'm willing to suspend disbelief of like uh you know veracity or whatever to believe that that bottle right. was real and that it was right in excellent condition because it was really quite awesome right uh rudy kernaway and be damned in his uh <laughs> kitchen in california yeah, yeah. with Merlot from napa yeah, it was all, all right. oakville right all right last question and you could probably do this Give me best wine around 15 20 bucks retail. Give me a white. Give me a red. It could be category like Muscadet. It could be a maker. It could be a grape. Um, I say this every show. My kids are in their 20s. They can't bring crappy wine to a party, 8 10 12 bucks. They can't afford 40 Yeah. So for 18 20 bucks, what's interesting? 
Let's see. <clears throat> I think on the white side, um, there's a producer in Austria named Hirsch. Spell. H-I-R-C-H. That's it. Wait, H-I-R-S-C-H. Right, Hirsch. Hirsch. Right. <clears throat> and uh, they make a Gruner Veltliner called Hirschvernügen, which literally <laughs> means, uh, like, essentially happy deer time. <laughs> right. And it's just like an inexpensive Gruner Veltliner, but it's like, uh, you know, really just translucently varietal, typical, you know, like. That's a great. You know, Gruner's clean. a great value. You're giving uh, us a good maker. Yeah. Covered the white. Red always is a little harder, but what do you got? You know, the red. Uh, I think I would probably go back to that uh, that Vincent Carem project in Shortland. Uh, okay. It's called Terre Brulee. Spell um, T-E-R-R-A. T-E-R-R-E. E, Terre. B-R-U-L-E-E. The first E. Like the, creme brulee? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. It, like literally scorched earth. You know, the Shortland is like that granitic, like black mountain. So it looks like burnt land. Uh, but he does a Shiraz and Sanso blend. That, In that price range? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I imagine it'd be on the shelves for probably like twelve to fifteen dollars. Really? Yeah, yeah. So there's a great, interesting wine. It's juicy, but it's not like dense and like chewy. But it has like good fruit, but lifted kind of like floral characteristics and spice. And it's like a, it's a fun kind of example of uh, South African red wine. All right. So Luke, I don't say this often, but that's how you answer that question <laughs> with two good records. All right, we got to wrap up in a few minutes. Um, every week at the end of the show, we uh, taste a different wine on air. I asked Luke to bring a wine in. He effed that up, but I'm not mad at him because he's a good guy. Um, but we did, Luke I and I, on the sea train. Luke and I strategized, and we pulled a bottle out of Roberta's, which has a wonderful list. And Luke decided that we pull a Pinot Gris. Let's talk quickly about the wine. What you what we pick and why? Well, so, I mean, what caught my eye is, you know, first and foremost, I'm always looking for the producer. And this is from Irie, who's a producer out in Oregon. E-Y-R-I-E. Yes. Irie. Yep. And uh, really cool stuff coming out of here. They have some of the oldest Pinot Gris vines in the United States. They have some of the only uh, non-phylloxera-affected vines for Pinot Gris and for Pinot Noir. Um, so, you know, if, you, if you're unfamiliar with phylloxera, this root louse that decimated tons right. of vines in Europe and the United States, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but you have this, like, really old, healthy rootstock. And so so Pinot Gris, you know, oftentimes people think, like, Pinot Grigio, this, like, kind of innocuous, whatever, uh, Italian wine. And really, it's it's kind of more than that. And I think this it wine... grows well up in Oregon, right? Oh, yeah, 100%. Yeah, right. And in Oregon, you get a much more textural representation where you're getting more kind of like stone fruit, like peach and apricot. Well, let's evaluate it. Let's All get right. specific. So let's start with color. It's got a beautiful, uh, like almost golden orange. Yeah, you'll notice uh, oftentimes Pinot Gris will have this like kind of copperish hue to Copper it. Copper is good. Yeah, Copper. yeah, yeah. It's a beautiful um, color. So that that it, it's nice. It's not pale. Let's go nose. Give me yeah. your nose descriptors. Well, the nose to me, uh, there's two things to it. One... You know, this is a four-year-old white wine, but even still, there's a little bit of that kind of reduction to it. Uh, so you get some smoky, flinty notes right off the bat. But, like, after that, you get past that into uh, kind of apricot and peach and stone fruit notes. You get this, like, kind of nutty almond sort of mm. characteristic. That's um, the reduction part, you think? Or the oxidative? The reduction is going to be more the uh, smoky stuff. Smoky. Like, like okay. matchstick, flinty, those kind of things. Got it. Um, what about mouthfeel? <laughs> it's a pretty full-bodied, you mm -hmm. know, it's a medium... Leaning towards medium plus, right? For a Pinot Gris. 
Yeah, absolutely. This is definitely uh, uh, like a medium plus kind of kind of white wine. A little it's, acidity on the tongue, right? Yeah, it's textural, it's mouth-watering, but what I like about it is um, you kind of get that good balance where you have like kind of lemon pith, like mm-hmm. that, that mouth-watering acidity, but then you also have this like really succulent stone fruit, orchard fruit kind of characteristic, super generous in terms of the fruit profile. And I even like that kind of bitterness, like on the back yeah, of the tongue. I don't mind that. Um, that to me is very reminiscent of like the Italian examples, you know. And if you're thinking of like the Frulian styles of Pinot Grigio, you'd have like Prosciutto di San Daniele with that mm. kind of stuff. It would and hold up to it well. I think that'd be right at home. What here. about the palate? Does the palate match the nose? When when we drank it early on in the show, mm-hmm. I hate to say it, but I got hit with apple. Okay, that went away. But <laughs> yeah, yeah. What yeah. do we get on the palate? Yeah, I think like uh, here, fleshier fruits kind of come forward a little bit. And I do like that it still maintains that kind of like citric and malic like tartness. Uh, I think the wine would feel flabby or fat, you know, if it didn't have that kind of punchy acidity to, to keep everything in, intact. Um, so, uh, yeah, to me, I think this is like pretty textbook. I really like the sort of floral characteristics. Like you get a lot of orange blossom and like citrus blossom Beautiful notes. Beautiful wine. I yeah, mean, yeah. It's, it's pretty complex. Ballpark to your best call retail? Retail, I'd put this in like the $35 price point. And it's a special bottle for $35, which is not cheap, cheap. But, I mean, this is top of the game for this varietal and all of that. What would we pair this with? Yeah, I'm glad you said that because I was actually thinking like when you said, uh, you know, not cheap, cheap, like... We're kind of moving into the fall season, you know, so if you're thinking more of like kind of rustic cooking, if you're thinking things at home, like stews or like polenta or like things like that they're kind of like hardier and more rib sticking like this is going to go with any of that you know I think up, so up in freely they cook a lot of like rabbit and game and things like that uh it's not got the body the acidity yeah yeah not that yeah, you're cooking like the... rabbit and game at home all the time but <laughs> well i go yeah. in the backyard i snag a rabbit <laughs> and you know i just skin it yeah, yeah. and i uh, make rabbit, a little stew a little rabbit stew is my favorite yeah, thing to do like the next couple of days i eat leftovers yeah it's but all yeah, good you know like i think now particularly in the autumnal season if you're talking like it's a good... squash apples pears acorns but a lot of nuts. people think you shift to red. This is a white oh, that yeah. matches, to your point, with some good autumnal uh, fare and all that. It's a great transition white. <clears throat> all right, Luke, that was a good pick. we got to wrap the show up. Um, if you have a question, suggestion, wine happening, or event, hit me up at Sam at thegrapenation.com. That's Sam at thegrapenation.com. Subscribe to the Grape Nation podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your pods. Follow us on Facebook. We're at The Grape Nation. On Instagram, we're at me, S. Ben Ruby, and the hashtag Instagram. On Twitter, to confuse you more, we're at Ben Ruby and the hashtag um, The Grape Nation. Um, like I said during the show, we'll post Luke's wine list with all the answers and makers, and I'll give you more info on the uh, weekly wine sip, the Irie Pinot Gris. Uh, tasted luke if we want to find out more about you yeah. on social media and crown shy two separate things where do we go uh hell i'm really bad at the old, all right so you can old, find luke yeah, on yeah, instagram yeah. at l bolin 22 uh, there you go okay I'm twitter <laughs> crown shy is at crown shy new york city all right, why did I bring this guy in <laughs> yeah no, no, uh, no but those are the two important yeah, things l bolin 22 that's me I said that. Yeah. And Crown Shine, New York City, NYC. Um, There you go. Those are the places to find it. Um, 
the reason I brought Luke on is, you know, Luke's got a great background and an eye towards wine and the business. And Crown Shy, like I said, is arguably, you know, one of the great and hot spots in New York right now. Um, Luke talked about a little of uh, the dedication, you know, of the sous chef and the chef de cuisine and James Ken and the front room and the back room. And you'll feel that when you go there. Um, so I want to thank our guest, Luke Bolin. I want to thank our engineer, as always, Jeet, and everyone at the Heritage Radio Network. I'm Sam Ben Ruby, and you've been listening to The Grape Nation. The Grape Nation is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. And thanks for listening. <laughs>